Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to start today by talking to uh, someone we haven't talked to in a while, but uh, we always love having him on here. He was a man who for many, many years covered Parliament Hill and Queen's Park for the Toronto Star. Uh, his name is Richard Brennan. Joins me now. Richard, how are you today? Got good. Uh, long time no talk. It has been way, way, way too long. Listen, I want to talk a lot about local politics and area politics, but just before we do, uh, fascinating and probably disturbing, I would say, story today. And I want to get you, you covered uh, Parliament Hill for, you well, politics in general for a long time. You probably have a good idea about strategizing as a politician, even though you weren't a politician. If you're the federal liberal government and Hamas puts out a thank you video to you today, thanking you for your support, what do you do if you're the liberals with that? Because you, I, I can't imagine you're thrilled to have that. Yeah, you'd be taken aback quite, I mean, that that's something that's, hard to push back on but you have to right away you say oh this is nonsense uh you know no no reason they should be thanking us we've supported the israelis all along and we've you know we've made some conditions that we thought should be put in place you know that kind of thing but no that's that's kind of devastating but it i don't know any who anybody who would believe it quite frankly but you know, uh, of course, the opposition will make great hay out of it, as I would if I was in opposition. Sure. As I say, I just, I, when I saw this today, I was like, my goodness, in the, in that liberal war room right now, there has got to be some deep thinking going on about how do we untangle ourselves from this? Because it may not, as you say, it may not be entirely fair, but it, it boy, it's, uh, it's not one you want sticking around. Oh, you can't ignore it. I mean... <laughs> You you just can't. I mean, it's it's you know given given the conditions of what's going on in the Middle East and and the angst over you know the thousands of people have been killed. You know, people people have kind of drawn drawn lines on which side they're on. But I think most Canadians think that you know Israel had every right to defend themselves and, and continue to defend themselves. But there's though even those people who supported Israelis uh, all along say come on, something's got to be done. We can't, this this kind of, you know, slaughter, if you will, can't continue. And why Hamas, you know, Hamas did that just, I think, just to be uh, troublemakers, basically. They knew, they know that they could put that out there and that's going to cause a great deal of you know, angst in the Liberal Party and and it's going to give fodder for the uh, for the opposition parties. So they're they're just paying a you know a troublemaker basically. Let's uh, it's a really interesting one. People can go look it up. Uh, I'm sure they'll see it a lot of other places. All right, let's let's bring it back a little closer to home because there's a lot of things as we get close to the end of the year. Uh, there are no more city council meetings this year, just as there are no more sitting of parliament right now. So we get to look back a little bit over what has happened and. Richard, one of the most interesting stories that came up right near the end of the year was what happened in Toronto, where Olivia Chow made this deal with the province to get the province to take over control of Gardner Expressway and Don Valley Parkway for maintenance and upgrades and all those kinds of things, which led Hamilton and Andrea Horvath to say, well, wait, we should maybe have the same thing done with Red Hill and with the link. But what was really interesting was um, there are a number of counselors apparently who have taken the position that even though Toronto gave up a slice of Ontario place and control of Ontario place, there was a trade-off 
that we shouldn't here have to do that. The province should just take it because, you know what, it's downloaded a bunch of things onto us in the past. Is that a, is that a realistic view in your mind or are we, if we want them to take these things, are we going to have to give something? Yeah. And Scott, I want a pony for Christmas. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, give me a break. I mean, the, the f- fact is, uh, Toronto mayor, she, she struck a deal. She struck a good deal. It would be a deal that you or I, or anybody with a half a brain would, would seize on because of the financial uh, benefits to the, to the city. It, I mean, really, they they gave up part of that uh, of the Ontario place, and it was just part of it that was going. They're going to use for uh, you know to build a parking garage, I believe. But the rest was all provincial land, and and it was going to be built. Whether you know, despite all the hand wringing and and all the people that are against it for whatever reason, and think think that somehow we're going to resurrect. Uh, you know Ontario Place the way it was back in the back in the seventies, which we know is not going to happen. So, you know Olivia Chow, you know she made the the good the best deal, and just look at the financial benefit they got out of it, Scott. That those two roads, uh, Gardner and Don Valley, represent fifty percent of their capital costs. Fifty mm. percent. And now that's gone or will be gone once the deal's finalized. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if we could strike a similar deal and get rid of the, your Red Hill Valley Parkway and the link and turn it over to the province? I mean, if I was on council, I, I would be working my the phone overtime with anybody I knew at Queens Park or and saying, look at you know what's good for the what's good for the gander here what why not do that for hamilton because it would be a great financial benefit but they're only going to if that ever happened they're only going to get that there's going to be a trade-off i don't know what that trade-off is it could be you know they uh province i i think this in my mind one of the things a province would want is for the expand of the boundaries yes. not not an expanse like uh ford Fort government recently wanted to do the ones they backed off on, but once one that I, a few years ago I think the planning department put together what they thought was necessary in terms of expansion to accommodate new housing, so that that might be a trade off they're looking for, but there will be a trade off. I mean, it, it's it, that's the way that's the way bit deals are done. You know, one of the things that's been very interesting about council over the past year, this new council, is there are a number of councillors who have been very vocal about their criticisms and I would say dislike of the provincial government. They have not hidden that. There's been a lot of very verbal criticism from council directed at the Ford government. Do you think that matters? Do you think that is a strategy that could hurt or, you know what, the Ford government, whoever's in Queens Park is busy. They don't really care what the people at city council say about them. Oh, they do. Believe me. I mean, Doug Ford wants to be light, but they, this, this, uh, provincial government under Doug Ford, they are very thin skinned. Oh, believe me, any little criticism, boy, they, they'll take that to their grave. Uh, That, so I would I would suggest that 
you'd be very calculated if I was on council in, in what you what you say. I'm not saying you should, you know, kiss their butt, but you know, you should be calculated in the criticism and try to work with the government. And I, and I think Andrea is, quite frankly. Uh, I think she's proven that in the past. But yeah, you, you just can't all you know keep saying, you know, the you know, federal government provincial government's bad, 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 you know. Sooner or later, they're just going to stop listening to you, and that's not what you want. You should be able to make, uh, I know, you should be able to make inroads through, you know, Andrea or or or, or you know or the local provincial uh, MPPs, whoever they might be, whatever party is. I mean, you should be working with people, not standing back and throwing bricks at them all the time. It just doesn't work. You mentioned Andrea Horvath. I mean, that was one of the comments and the concerns, quite honestly, a lot of people had coming out of the municipal election. Would she be able to work with the provincial government? Clearly she has been, but that's also because what you just said, she has clearly tempered her criticism. She's not the opposition leader anymore. She doesn't have to, but it does seem like Andrea Horvath has taken a different tack as mayor rather than as provincial politician. Very different. Well, she's the mayor now. She's not the you're not the leader of the you know New Democrat, New Democrats at Queens Park. She's just not. So, to be a mayor, you're you're there to represent everybody, not regardless of what political stripes. And she has you know she has shown that she is working with with uh, you know the various ministers in the government or, or Doug Ford himself. And that's the way you do it. You, you might not always like the the outcome of what goes on, but you you have to work with the province. And again, you don't have to kowtow to them, but you can certainly make every effort to be professional and deal with it with the province in that way. One of the things that really is going to be an interesting thing regarding the mayor, now that we have strong mayor powers, she has an awful lot of control over the budget, more than a mayor would have before. And going into this budget process, one of the things that she had mentioned and talked about was, you know, maybe this is the time to dip into reserves. Hamilton's looking at a massive tax increase, 14.2% was the number we've heard. Maybe this is the time to start pulling out of reserves because this is a rainy day. Is that a good plan because things really are looking difficult as far as big taxes, or is that not such a great plan because, well, we're getting rid of the money that we've stashed away for a legitimate rainy day? Yeah. Selling off the furniture is never a good idea. Uh, and, and, but the thing is, Scott, you know, and I, and I've read your columns and, and, you know, and you've got much better contacts than I do in the city, but I tell you, I can't tell you the number of municipal budgets I covered in my earlier years as a reporter and every budget. Oh, my God. The, you know, the increase is going to be unbelievable. You know, people will be beside themselves, you know, run for your lives. And by the time it comes out, it's, you know, it's it's acceptable. So I, I don't I really don't buy that 14 percent or whatever it was. I just think it's, you know, you know what it is. It's it's a plan. I go out and I say, look it, we got to get fourteen percent from you folks. And then when you don't have to get fourteen percent, I look like a hero. Mm. 
What would be the, what do you think then? And look, this is, this is a tough question because I didn't, I didn't, I gave you no forewarning of this, but what would be an acceptable number that even, so if people have now been conditioned maybe to 14%, what's a number that people could hear where they would say, oh, okay. I don't think anybody's going to swallow anything more than, you know, three, four, 5%, uh, you know, and you know, it, it may have to be more than that, but it's not going to be 14%. Not nowhere near that. That's just it's 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 hyped. It's and it and it's been this is tried and true over the years of how municipal governments operate. So they can they can come out and look like the good guys when they decide that hey things aren't you know things aren't going to be as bad as we forecast. If you were to go with reserves, though, to try and get that number down, because I'm in full agreement with you, Richard, there's no way they're coming back with 14%, but some of the whatever amount it's whittled down to, again, based on what the mayor has said, could be the result of tapping into reserves. If you did it one year, is that okay? Like, Or is it is it only concerning if you're starting to take reserves two or three or four years in a row to get numbers down? If you do it once, are we okay? Well, it comes a bit of a dick, an addiction after a while. Well, we 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 did it this year. Uh, we're, we're probably going to have to do it next year too. I, I I don't think. I mean, that's there for a rainy fund. You know, uh, God knows with with the climate change that we're experiencing, there's got to be that a rainy fund, and that isn't. They shouldn't be using that to run the city. I mean, there should be enough, in my mind. Because I I don't see the books, in my mind there should be enough coming in to cover the cost of what what it costs or to operate a city. You know, new new roads, fix up this garbage collection, all that good stuff. But to dip into to dip in that rainy day fund, I think is uh, is is not a good practice. I wish we had a lot more time. We will do this again very soon. I uh, love having you on. Richard Brennan, former uh, columnist, former journalist with the Toronto Star covering Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. Richard, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Good talking to you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Statistics Canada in the last couple days released its numbers, its population numbers for the country. And as of October the 1st, which ends the third quarter of the year, Canada's population topped 40.5 million. Now, that's neither here nor there. What's interesting about this is that it means that we added more than 430,000 new Canadians in the third quarter of the year alone. And it means that this year, with only three quarters of the year gone, we've already added more people into this country than any other full year ever. And I've said this a bunch of times, and I'll say it again just for clarity. I don't think that most Canadians, in fact, surveys would show most Canadians favor and like and appreciate and endorse immigration. But an awful lot of Canadians, three in four now, according to a Leger poll, that was released in November are saying, hold on a second, we're like, we like immigrants. We we're in favor of immigration, but how in the world can we support this many people? Is this amount of immigration into a country that has housing issues and medical issues and everything else? Is this sustainable? Let me bring in Moisha Launder. He's a senior economics lecturer with Concordia University. Moisha, thank you for doing this. Hello. 
This is one of the trickiest discussions to have because if you, and I've said this before on the show, if you show any criticism or concern about this, some will say, well, you're being xenophobic. You're not wanting new people to come to the country. In this particular case, Moisha, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that there's a legitimate concern of how do we manage this many people this quickly. So I think it's important then that we separate out two different issues. One is, do we as Canadians favor immigration? I think the answer is yes. Do we favor it if our politicians and leaders are not capable of properly integrating them? I think the answer is no. Mm. So, you know, I, I think that we can be perfectly consistent here in having a belief that, yeah, it's good but we're not rising to the challenge of incorporating them. It, it is very, uh, is the word ironic? I don't know, you tell me. It, I, I'll use ironic that we're having this discussion the same time, maybe the two most pressing, pressing issues, well, two of them that our country is facing is a housing shortage and problems with our healthcare system, which these two things would seem to play into that. Right. And they are connected. So if you know that you're going to have a certain amount of immigration, like this is not a hundred years ago where they would just show up unannounced and say, can you help me? So this is a guided process. And so the government should have an idea as to who's coming, how many are coming, where they're coming from, where they're likely to go. So if you're going to have issues relating to housing, if you're going to have issues relating to health care, then it would seem that a little bit of forward planning that, all right, how do we make sure then that we're able to absorb them when they arrive, when they go where they want to go, uh, would help alleviate some of the problem. But again, it's an issue of lack of political will, lack of political foresight that's probably behind this more than the actual immigration itself. It does seem to me to be a colossal failure of our system when we have people come to this country, presumably because they want to make a better life, and we don't even have a home for them, that some of them are then living on the streets and in bus shelters and in shelters, period. That, that seems to be a colossal failure of us. It is. And again, it's, you know, it, it's a belief, too, that somehow they're showing up with no skills or with no job prospects or they're coming here to live off of the system, which, of course, is not true. So there, too, when they're showing up, we have a rough idea as to what skills they're bringing, what jobs they'd be able to fulfill. So it, it's just a complete failure. But, you know, I can even maybe take a step back here and say that it's probably even connected to the voter then. That is the voter insisting that politicians take some of our tax dollars and use it to help alleviate these. Uh, you know, you can tie it to then that the more people that you push into the streets, into bus shelters, the likelier outcome is going to be crime. Not inherently because the people that are arriving are criminals per se, but because anybody in a frustrated desperation life or death sure. situation right, is going to be pushed to their limits. And so, you know, the amount of resources that we're wasting on policing, courts, uh, jails, rehabilitation, it's not to say that it all should be eliminated or cut, but it's, is that partly a cause of us not preparing in advance? And this is the way that we have to deal then with those consequences. So, Moisha, does this then suggest that our politicians are so completely out of touch? Because how do you, how do you continue to do this when you're being told again and again and again, we don't have housing for everybody, not just for new people, not just for new Canadians, but for Canadians too, existing Canadians, whatever you want to describe that. We're facing a housing crisis. We can't get people their health care. We can't, if you are a politician 
is this just a, a signal that you are completely out of touch or you don't want to hear the answer to this or you like, what does it say? So I usually put the blame back on the voter because we're not asking them to be in touch, aware, prepared. Uh, and so why would they risk upsetting their bosses if their bosses are not clamoring for these types of solutions, right? So I think we often forget uh, which end is the tail and which end is the dog. And, uh, you know, it's we, we run them, not they run us. And so if we're not asking them that, hey, we favor uh, immigration, but we want to make sure that this immigration is done in a controlled way where they will have housing, where they will have, and not just them, but us too. Yes. Uh, if we're not telling them, take resources and do this. And if you can't manage it, then find resources from somewhere else and tell us where it's going to come from. I mean, that's part of the political process within a democracy. We're just not demanding it of them. So they can stick their head in the ground and just say, well, I guess I don't need to worry about it because nobody's telling me I do need to worry about it. Is that um, not a, but, is that not though a wildly risky political position to take because any party whose leader came out, and let's say for the sake of debate, because we could probably guess how this would play out in our election, it would probably be Pierre Poliev who would say this because he's not been in power and we're talking about this swell of people coming in. If he says, we want to restrain the number of people coming into the country, does that not get spun in some ways as being you are anti-immigrant? Do you not risk that you become seen as intolerant or racist or whatever? Yes. And that's, and that's exactly it. But you know what? That type of xenophobic behavior starts to surface after a while because all you have to do is try and convince people that, hey, the reason that we have housing problems or healthcare shortages or uh, lack of space in schools is because of immigrants. People will say, well, if our leaders are telling me that, then I guess that must be the case. So it's a lot more than just standing up in front of a microphone and saying, I am pro-immigration. I am pro-immigration, but I'm also prepared to take our resources and invest it into making sure that they integrate properly, making the convincing argument that immigrants in general contribute more tax dollars than they take out of the system. So this is a net benefit for all of us here in that it keeps our taxes lower than it otherwise would be. It provides diversity. It provides a broader range of products and services that we would never have imagined in Canada 20, 40 years ago. Take somebody who's going to stand in front of the microphone and say, and if you don't like it, then go ahead, vote me out. Uh, but you're not going to like the consequences. It's, 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 again, we're not asking for it. And so we do lay the groundwork that, yeah, somebody can come out and take a, an anti-immigrant stance uh, and people could lap it up. And I don't think we're going to like the direction that Canada goes if that becomes a dominant way of thinking. What do you, what is the, um, and I don't know, I mean, look, if you know the answer to this, maybe you should be running for prime minister because I think it's a tricky one, but what is the answer right now then? Because there's two ways of looking at this. One, one line of immigration thinking is, look, we, I don't know that we can sustain this much. So let's whittle it down and only allow people in who are going to be economic immigrants who can bring jobs and expertise and real value, financial might to the country. The other is we need to be a country that opens our borders to the destitute and those who are escaping wars and everything else, they may not bring the same skills, but we have to be a place of refuge for them. If you, how, if we're going to whittle down the numbers, cause we say we can't sustain it, which way do you lean? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to have to pick one or the other, and I don't know that it's necessarily a binary choice, uh, but I think it's a, it becomes a function of what are, what are the environment in which we find ourselves right now. So where you see that the world is increasingly suffering from wars and uh, economic migration uh, that's, that's behind it, uh, then you have to be compassionate. If you find the world is a slightly more stable place, then you can be a little more uh, pointed towards saying, all right, who's going to contribute most of the economy? But, you know, that, that's generally at the margin. I, I don't think that it becomes a binary decision, and I don't think that Canada needs to limit immigration to any extent that 
we're going to have to make a choice of we only allow in one or the other. Could we, though, keep going at 430,000 people per quarter? So basically almost a million and a half people a year. That's, that's never been done before here. No, no, it's, it's not sustainable. Uh, that, that's, you know, a million and a half people, that's two and a half percent of the population. That, that's uh, an unsustainable growth rate, and it, it will become a drag on standard of living after a certain point in time. Uh, the, the issue is that you could conceivably do it. But again, it's, it's the 10 biggest cities in this country need to start thinking about, all right, are we prepared for, say, two and a half percent growth per year in our population, two and a half percent growth in the number of kids in schools, two and a half percent growth in the number of doctors demands and, uh, you know, the various public services that they're going to need. Uh, and is your budget allocating enough funds to be able to accommodate that? If you're not, uh, then, you know, the, the PM, the, the premiers need to start knocking some heads in city halls saying, listen, we're going to give you some of the money that we always promised to give you, uh, but you need to come up with a plan and it better be convincing. Yeah. And, and two and a half percent, you know, doesn't sound like an enormous number until you say, well, yeah, but in four years, that's a 10th. Now you, you've grown by 10% and then in 10 years, you've grown by a quarter. And when you consider how long Canada has been around for, uh, that's a, that is a very, very fast growth when you consider how long we've been here for. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult topic. There's no question about it. And it's, uh, it's one that people have to be very careful with because you're right, Moshe, we don't want to create a situation where we become these anti-immigrant angry at new people people because that's, I don't, look, I don't blame, we got to run here, but I don't blame any of the immigrants who are coming to this country for any of the issues that are resulting from them coming. It's the politicians who are doing this, who are not then, as you say, providing the resources. It's not the people's fault. It's not their fault at all. And you're completely right. And I I think that that's the message that we need to keep hammering away on is that make sure that if you're going to point a finger, you're pointing it at the right people. And and it's a lack of leadership. But again, to me, that goes back to a lack of Mm. voter insistence of are you prepared? Really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. Moshe Launder, Senior Economics Lecturer with Concordia University. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Here is a headline that uh, I read the other day. It was from a piece from the Associated Press. And I'm guessing that there are an awful lot of people who are going to be not even remotely one iota surprised by this headline. Pew survey, YouTube tops teens social media diet with roughly a sixth using it almost constantly. That is a... I mean, I think most of us have expected and known that a lot of people use social media. It's those last couple of words that, boy, they um, they jump off the page almost constantly. I want to bring in Jeffrey Gottfried. He is an associate director of research with the Pew Institute of Research. Joins me now. Jeffrey, how are you today? Good. Glad to be here. Well, I appreciate you doing this because, again, I I... I I don't know if you were surprised when you started to see the numbers that were popping up. I don't think too many people will be. Maybe with the almost constantly, but to to see the numbers that are here, boy, uh, were they surprising or are these in line with what you might have thought? Well, first off, thank you so much for your interest in our work and, and talking to me about this. Um, one of the things I just want to talk about first is that we at the center um, have a long history of studying tech adoption among teens. Um, and teens have, uh, for many reasons, and this is teens have always been the leaders of the adoptions of new technology. Um, and they're an important group to explore when it comes to the social impact of technology because of a lot of cultural debates 
around the impact of the internet and smartphones and, and sure. other online platforms. So talking to then the social media platforms, we see that despite a lot of these negative headlines and growing concerns around social media's impact on youth, we do see that teens continue to be using these platforms at really high rates. Um, and with, as you say, many describing their social media use as almost constant. So for instance, as you say, 16% say um, they are almost constantly using YouTube. Well, when we see the proportion of who are, say they use YouTube at all, we see that nearly all teens are saying they're using YouTube at some point. Um, we also see that majorities of teens are also saying that they use TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram. We see that there are these online platforms that really do stand out. Now, the other final aspect of that there is not only is it YouTube that teens are using almost constantly, but the other sites, including some of the ones that I just mentioned, are also being used almost constantly. So what we saw, we asked that among five of the sites that we asked about, we saw that of those five sites, almost a third are saying that they're on at least one of those almost constantly. So there is a fair amount of teens who are using these platforms at a high rate. Do we know what, and I don't know if you got this specific, do we know what almost constantly actually means? That is, we, and a lot of the survey work that we do, we, we do leave some of that up to um, the respondent to answer. And so that goes a little bit beyond what we're able to capture there. Um, but it is um, it, it is um, more than several times a day, definitely. Um, we, we ask the question almost constantly several times a day, daily, and so forth. And so, But we do see that it is definitely at high rate throughout the day. This is, uh, now you said that you have been, that Pew has been studying this uh, for a while. Is this where it was before, or are we seeing numbers go up, go down, or stay where they were? Yeah, that's a great question. And so what we see overall is we did the study last year as well. Um, and we saw that between this year and last year, there seems to be quite a bit of stability itself um, across many of the sites that we asked about. Um, there are a couple that we did ask that were new this year, including Be Real and Discord, um, as the social media landscape does change. Um, but this, we start to see changes when we look back quite a few years. And so we did a similar study back in 2014 and 2015. And at that point, we do see that there's quite a bit of change on some of the sites that we asked about. And one of those sites specifically being Facebook. Mm. Um, in, that, in 2014 and 2015, we saw that about 7 in 10 uh, teens told us that they are using Facebook. That has dropped substantially um, this year, in which we see a third of teens saying that they use Facebook. And so we do see that there is some decline. And we see a little bit of a decline as well not as dramatic when it comes to Twitter. Yeah, I guess those are now considered the old person's sites. <laughs> is, <laughs> is that what we take from this, that you're totally uncool if you use Twitter or Facebook? <laughs> that does go a little bit beyond what we're able to say in, in some of the work that we've done. But we do see that um, Facebook rates among adults tends to be quite large. There is a majority of adults who do say that they use uh, Facebook when we look at other data that we have. Well, and again, I'm looking at the the graph that you've posted here, and it is it is striking to me how low relative to all the others Facebook is. And I mean, when you look at the bar graph, YouTube, seventy one percent use it every day. TikTok, fifty eight percent. Snapchat, fifty one. Instagram, forty seven. Facebook, nineteen. I mean, it's it's precipitously different from what the other ones are. Yeah, and and 
Absolutely. And when you say YouTube, YouTube really does stand out here among teens. YouTube continues to dominate that social media landscape um, uh, among teens. And there really were those three other sites, TikTok, Snapchat, and Instagram, that really formed this other group in which still a majority of teens use them. So yes, there are those sites really do stand out among youth among teens. I'm kind of surprised by that, Jeffrey, the YouTube number, only because... It you're watching a video you're not participating as much we always i always think of social media as you going back and forth with your friends you bragging about what you had for lunch or and this whatever i mean it's you telling your story youtube seems to be more of a you standing back and watching someone else yeah that's an interesting point and a, a lot of these we think about as as not necessarily social media sites but online platforms in which in which um, teens are engaged, and they all have their different ways that people do engage with them, whether it's more passive, more active in certain ways. Um, but even still, the, the use of it is still quite large among mm. the population. I, I do wonder, and again, maybe this says something about how old I am now, but I do wonder if YouTube is now TV. Like what TV was for people who I grew up with, we watch TV all the time. I wonder if that's YouTube now. That's an interesting uh, question. It does go a little bit beyond the scope of what we're able to see sure. here. Um, but uh, absolutely, uh, uh, that there are um, different ways that potentially people do engage with it. Um, but the thing that we just do see with YouTube is that it's just so consistent across teens, is that not only was it so prominent among teens overall, it's po- prominent among various groups within, within teens. So one of the really interesting things that was really important for us to understand with teens is that not all teens are the same. There are various different groups of teens and the way that they engage with these online platforms does differ. Now, when it came to YouTube, we still saw that vast majorities across the teen population was still using YouTube. The If you look at um, gender, I mean, girls, more girls, according to your number, quite a bit more on TikTok. Uh, when we talk about the constantly, girls, much more... Uh, YouTube, it's pretty similar. Snapchat, Instagram, I mean, it's uh, almost across the board. It seems, whether it's by a larger margin or by a smaller margin, but it seems girls are more on this. I, I I don't know if I'm surprised by that. I don't know if there's an explanation for that. There probably is some psychologist or sociologist who could come up with some very deep explanation, but I was kind of surprised there was much of a gap at all. Yeah, and that's something that we do see, and we see that across um, our um, work in adults as well, that there are these gender differences that do arise with these online platforms. And so, for example, like you do say, there are some that teen girls are more likely to be using, including Instagram, Be Real, TikTok, Snapchat, and Facebook. That said, there are online platforms in which teen boys were more likely to use as well. And this included Discord and Twitch, um, as well as um, Reddit. And so those do stand out as ones in which we do see that boys do gravitate towards those a little bit more than girls. Okay. So for those who aren't as familiar with those, and I'm not, again, I'm not going to put you in the position of being amateur psychologist here, um, but what would be the difference in those methods, in those platforms from the ones that many people would be more familiar with? Because they're newer. I mean, we all know how Twitter works. We all know how Facebook works. We all know how YouTube works. What's different about those? Or is there any real difference? Um, there, I mean, there are differences in how people use them. And it does go beyond, we weren't able to ask, like, why are you going to each of these sites and so forth? So we, we can't be able to sort of dive into what that would be. Um, but it does consistent with some of the stuff that we have seen before. 
Um, and there are other differences that we do see beyond gender that itself. So, for example, within race and ethnicity, we also saw um, that there were these differences that did stand out. Um, so, for example, again, pointing one out, when we look at TikTok, just like there was a difference with gender, there also is a difference with race and ethnicity and a difference that in which we saw that Black teens and Hispanic teens were more likely to be using uh, TikTok than white teens are. And so there are these differences that just do arise among, within the population. There is a much uh, more complicated, not complicated, but the more numbers on it. There's a graph here of um, gen of uh, how, sorry household income with all these different ones. And what's really interesting to me is that the numbers are basically the same, whether it's under 30,000, 30 to 75,000 or over 75,000. Most of these sites, most of these social media platforms, the numbers are pretty similar. The one that is way different, it seems, is Facebook. Yeah. And it's the opposite of what I thought would have thought for some reason that people who have higher household incomes are far less likely to use Facebook than people with the lowest household incomes. And again, I know you, I know the numbers you weren't asking specifically why, but is there any obvious thing that pops out to why that would be on that Um, particular one? Yeah, there isn't anything obvious that stands out there, but it is something that's consistent with what we've seen in the past. This is not the first time that we have seen something like this when it comes to income and Facebook use. Um, But so absolutely, it, it, it is. Um, something that we're keeping our eye on. It's something that we've been tracking over time. Um, but again, there, there isn't anything obvious that stands out there, especially, and, and that's a great question that would be, I would love to follow up with at some point. There is a part of this whole thing that if you're asking people, or if, if sorry, if kids are saying we are on this almost constantly, it is suggesting, and maybe this again is absolutely no surprise, but to be on it almost constantly means you have to have a way to be on it almost constantly, which has to mean that we are now at the point when almost everybody, regardless of your socioeconomic position, has a smartphone with them all the time. Or am I misreading something? It would seem you have to have that in order to be on it constantly. Yeah. And what we do see is that, you know, a vast majority of teens do have access to these digital devices, including smartphones. We see that 95% of teens now have access to a smartphone. 90% have access to a desktop or laptop computer. Um, And uh, a a large majority do have access to gaming consoles. Um, That said, there are differences within the population that do stand out here. Uh, And one of them being household income, one that we just talked about, in which we do see that um, those who are living in households in which the annual income is less than $30,000 a year um, are less likely to say that they have access to a computer at home. It is still a majority, but it is lower than those who have incomes, who live in households with higher incomes. Uh, we got to let you go, but um, do you do the same, do you do an, a questionnaire like this or a survey like this beyond teens? Have you done that before? Because I, I, you know, and again, maybe this is something you would find interesting too, but I, I'd love to know if adults, because I, I don't think we're all that far behind those of us who are out of the teen years. I think they may be more active on social media, but I don't think we're all that far behind them, unfortunately or unfortunately. Yeah, we do a different, we do um, studies of US adults as well, especially on um, digital device access and on um, uh, social media site usage as well. And we do see that large portions of adults, for example, are um, using various social media sites. Um, And we do see that Facebook and YouTube are the two among adults that tend to dominate with YouTube being quite at the top, just like it is with the teens. 
And so we do these, these, um, we do these, uh, uh, surveys of adults as well. And it's truly interesting to be able to track these over time. And, and, um, you and all the audience as well can find all of this data and research on our website at pewresearch.org. You beat me to it. I was just going to say, go look it up at pewresearch.org. <laughs> there's a lot of numbers on here. We couldn't get into most of them. Honestly, there's, I mean, you did a lot of work here and there's, a, it's, but it's a really interesting thing for people to go look at, especially, I would think, especially if you have kids. I don't know. Again, I, I neither you nor I, Jeffrey, are psychologists, psychiatrists, whatever. Um, I don't think you are. Uh, I, but it's not like, I don't know whether this is good or bad. There's parts of this that seem to me to be very concerning if you're a parent or a teacher, but that's, uh, I guess that's up for the parent or the teacher to decide, but it's, uh, it is well worth looking at pewresearch.org. Jeffrey Gottfried, Associate Director of Research with the Pew Institute of Research. Really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.